Welcome back. You're listening to Wellington Access Radio, 7.83 a.m. Yeah, you are. I'm your host, Laura Kewen, and uh, you're listening to B-Side Stories, stories of the people who make Wellington tick. Who else is hosting today? Oh, oh yeah, and I'm here as well. I'm Henry Peach, um, always present, always aware. Um, the, the omnipresent Henry Peach is here with us today, and we're joined in the studio by an author, an immigrant, a sometimes blogger, a hard-to-describe artist, Benjamin Mumford Hard to describe. I like that. <laughs> uh, Benjamin Mumford Zisk, uh, thanks very much for coming on b Thanks for Stories. having me. It's kind of fun being on this side of the desk, actually. Yeah, you've been helping us out doing yeah. some hosting duties. The tables have turned. Now I'm in the hot seat. Because you've got some of some of your own artistic work to share. I do have my own artistic work to share. So just to explain that you uh, have written a couple of sci-fi novels mm-hmm. in a series that mm-hmm. you expect to be ongoing. Yes, I do. Uh, the series is called The Adventures of Gregory Sampson, Space Explorer. And uh, the first hint that you might actually get from that long-winded title is that this is a little bit tongue-in-cheek, this science fiction. There's a lot of humor to it. But the first book is called The Origami Man, and the second book is called A Farther Orbit. Um, These were projects that, well, the first one, The Origami Man, was a project that I came to about five years ago at this point. I had just gotten a new writing machine, actually, and just to get a feel for the new keyboard and get a feel for how the machine worked, by the way, it was an iPad with a, a tertiary keyboard, so I have to say it didn't work well. Um, so that was that was a, a labor of love. This book is a labor of love. Anyway, so I sat down to try to write science fiction in the same voice as Robert Parker's detective novels, so sort of first-person, wry, humorous, Dashiell Hammett. You know, if you ever stood out on a street corner at 3 in the morning in the rain with your guts punched out, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and I decided that I wanted to take that and put it in space and sat down and wrote the first 15, 20 pages of The Origami Man. And by the end of it, I really dug it. And so I decided I would just keep going until it stopped being fun. And this is probably a good time to say that The Origami Man, rather uh, Gregory Sampson, is a man who has a living, sentient, transforming alien spaceship accidentally implanted in the back of his neck and this thing has a mimetic consciousness that doubles his mind and talks to him in his head and can turn into any kind of machine that he would want in a given moment so wait this um, is this is your protagonist this is my protagonist yeah this is, this is the actual the, the the beat of the story is this dude who has something akin to like if Calvin and Hobbes had Hobbes as a transforming alien warship so by that token, it's been a lot of fun. It's still fun, and I'm still writing these stories, and it's just been a blast. So write it until I'm done writing it. I'm not done writing it. So, so. the Origami Man is like the origin story yes. of Gregory Sampson yes. and how he gets this bizarre, Cab miraculous, is the name that we give it, alien spaceship. I gave it called Cab. Yes. And um, it's a little bit, you've described it as humorous. Mm-hmm. It gets compared to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah, I, that was, that I was found the it coolest bit, review I ever saw. <laughs> I found it a little bit like a superhero, very superhero-ish. Um, almost Definitely. Like the, like the Green Lantern or Spider-Man, yep. you know, that, that um, radioactive spider. But yeah. in, this, in this instance, it's... 
a seed that lands on him at half the speed of light and kills him, brings him back to life, and and he's got turns he's got his, these powers. Yeah, he's, he's in this situation. He has a, a shell of uh, alien raw material that sits on his back and camouflages itself so no one can see it, and it can unfold into this anything machine, this uh, science as magic machine that allows him to leave Earth and. It, it turns into a lot of fun. It's all his thoughts. The whole thing is told from the standpoint of him many, 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 literally trillions of years in the future looking back on his life and giving his experiences in the very, very beginning of his life. So he leaves Earth. He discovers that there is an immense civilization out in space. Earth is quarantined because our diseases are genetic outliers and so he ends up just discovering that there's so much going on out there that we've been completely unaware of can i add um you know as in so much sci-fi we're unaware they're you know vastly their technology is vastly more powerful than anything we know but everything is oddly familiar yes that was definitely something that i wanted to maintain throughout the series so for one there are two parts to that. For one thing, he gets out there and discovers that one of the unifying truths of the universe of life in general is that people tend to act the same no matter where you go, whether it's his – People in the broadest people sense. People in the, the absolute broadest sense. <laughs> so you've got his, his big old gorilla-looking friend who's approximately humanoid and then you've got this shape-shifting cop who's 80 million years old and they, they tend to act along the same beats. The other side to that, though, is that the ship is constantly translating for him to the extent that you have these humorous moments where they're trying to work out, if you say there's more than one way to skin a cat, did you actually say there's more than one way to skin a cat? Did you make an anecdote that on your planet means something similar? Does it have the same kind of structure? So there's a lot of that cross-cultural conversation that goes on in addition to lasers and things blowing up because you got to have lasers and things blowing up. Of course. That's of what course. makes it sci-fi. Yeah, definitely. Well, one of the things that can definitely make it sci-fi. Yeah. So, but I wrote The Origami Man and then A Farther Orbit originally actually as one book and published it very briefly and then yanked it right off the shelves because it was my first foray into writing seriously. I guess that's not entirely true. It was the first thing that I had finished to the point where I could conceivably publish it. And I turned around and looked at it and realized that, A, I was at that point in my career where I was still advancing very quickly. So even though it was something that was ready to go, I was already a year down the pike a lot better than I had been. And the other side was this is something that it's important for any kind of writing, any kind of art that involves a cast. But especially with science fiction, given the history of science fiction as sort of a boys' club, um, I think I have five characters in The Origami Man, all told. Uh, one of them is this sort of sexless robot thing, and they've got your protagonist, uh, best friend, an alien, and one woman. So one woman out of five people. And she came off as a bit of a harpy, actually. And I really – I couldn't allow that. Uh, the idea was that she was going to be blindsided by what he becomes. Uh, this is just a roommate of his. But 
And, and she's supposed to be a little bit xenophobic, and she's supposed to just not be able to hang with the idea of there being aliens. Because, you know, that would be a huge thing if you turned around and your roommate went, by the way, we're not alone in the universe, and here's the extent to which we are not alone in the universe. That would be tough for some people, and she doesn't handle it well. But the trouble is that they say that it takes a really amazing actor to portray a bad actor, and to that same extent, it really takes a lot of skill to write a, a shitty person. And if you aren't good at what you're doing, you end up actually writing a shitty character. And that's what I did. So not only did I have um, a poorly presented character, it was the only woman in my story. And I just, I couldn't allow that to go on. And so I pulled the book and rewrote it, rewrote her, changed her reaction, not to the extent that she had a, a different reaction, just allowed her to have more humanity. And along the way, I actually realized that I had a lot more I needed to say within this, you know, same arc. It wasn't like I special editioned this thing. But I, I chopped a book that had become 190,000 words. And for point of uh, reference, the second Harry Potter book is 103,000 words. So you're looking at a fairly long novel at that point. So I chopped it in half rewrote it to make sure that it fit, you know, this narrative arc followed by narrative arc. And those are the first two books, actually. So The Origami Man became The Origami Man and A Farther Orbit. Um, and what I have now is a plan to write... It's a sextet, but they all sort of follow that two-book arc mm -hmm. where you end up with... Even, even though they're completely autonomous stories, as I have them planned out... It ends up being something that's a little bit like a trilogy if you look at if you step back. So you've got this first sure. bit that's an origin story, and then you've got this second bit that's going to be a different story, and the third bit that caps the whole thing. So you sort of see them as Act One, Act Two, Act Three. Yeah, in a lot of respects. Uh, act Act One, Book One, Book Two, Act Two, Book One, Book Two, that sort of thing. Kind of yeah. like actually yeah. what uh, Tolkien did. If you if you go back and read The Lord of the Rings, it's Book One, Book Two for each one. So sure. Yeah. So, for people who are curious already, mm. who you who who you you've piqued their interest and they want to be able to check out more about the Origami Man and read about the book or just find out more about it, or sure. how can they get their you hands should on by it? the way, it's a lot of fun. Totally, there's like jokes on every page and stuff blows up like every other page too. It's it's great. <laughs> there's Truly, like pathos lasers. too, emotional depth, all all kinds of stuff. Uh, if you do want to find it though, you. This is actually one of the weirder things about our, our current age. You can Google search me. Ah. But I do have a website, which is my bizarre, unique last name, uh, .com. So mumfordzisk.com, M-U-M-F-O-R-D-Z-I-S-K.com. And you can also enter that into Amazon. You'll come up with the books there uh, where they are for sale. The website will show you not just the books that I'm writing, but also the other things that I'm trying to put together at this point. So there's a blog detailing my experiences in New Zealand that I've decided to call the expatriate patriot as an American in 2017 with a progressive liberal mindset who has uh, found himself somewhat at a remove from his country. Mm -hmm. Hint, hint. Um, there's a blog... There are book reviews, things like that. Pretty much everything that I'm doing works its way through the website as I'm trying to figure out what the larger purpose is for it. So, but yes, you can you can look me up online, and you won't just find my my personal Facebook page. It's bizarre having a professional identity. <laughs> I 
told you I'd get here, Dad. Mumford Zisk. Uh, Mumford Zisk. Um, dot com. Yeah. Nice thing about a unique last name is nobody ever takes your login information. Nobody's got. Nobody's got that URL. Yeah. Nobody. Uh, fantastic. So that's where people can check out the book and yeah. other stuff that you've got going mm-hmm. on. Is is the book self published? It is. So. When I had this thing somewhat ready to roll for the first time, I went through the publishing industry. Well, I tried to go through the publishing industry. I found agents, talked to them for a while, and um, people kept balking at this story. And finally somebody told me why. And the truth was this was at a moment where two things were happening. One, um, Twilight had just come out, Fifty Shades of Grey had just come out in big ways and everyone was going crazy about you know weird kind of regressive bondage fantasies and vampires and i mean that's that's usually pretty big in sci-fi say again that 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 kind of stuff has usually been pretty big in sci-fi it is it's it's kind of been a natural fit regressive issues too Mm -hmm. uh have been pretty big in sci-fi it's kind of funny to see it and also a lot of really progressive issues too uh the, the thing about a genre where you can say pretty much anything that you want and create any scenario to make any kind of statement is you get good and you get bad so anyway the the point is though especially with the 50 shades versus twilight thing you know one is one is uh an offshoot of the other and for those of you who don't know by the way 50 shades is actually it started out as twilight fan fiction uh which means yeah oh yeah which means that the the first draft was probably a lot more bitey i did not know that yeah fun fact yeah um (laughs) So the other side of this ties into it actually kind of nicely. The publishing industry was really in free fall at that point. Uh, Amazon had just started to do their self-publishing imprint in a big way. The internet was just, you know, smashing. It was like King Kong walking through uh, the publishing industry. And nobody wanted to invest any money in something that wasn't like, this is going to make you 50 grand right off the bat followed by 5 million. Then we're going to make a movie and then we're going to make another movie. And you could totally make a movie out of my book. But the thing is that if you describe it to someone, and this was actually an agent saying this to me over the phone, this is a funny, affecting science fiction story about a guy with a living alien spaceship in his neck who goes up and discovers a very familiar, very outlandish world, gets sucked into a war profiteering scheme, and along the way processes for the first time in eight years the death of his parents in an honest and truthful way. So not only do you have humor and lasers and aliens, you also have a real emotional weight to this that gets explored in an honest and mature way. I'm about 10 sentences past where I need to be if I'm trying to get a publishing age, uh, a publisher to invest 50 grand in pump printing this book and advertising this book. So she says to me, given what self-publishing is becoming, possibly you should try that. You should you should try to create a following, and then you can come back to us with your rebel army in five years and go, print my book, damn it! It's like proof of concept. They exactly. want to know they have an audience. Yeah, totally. Um, and that that made a lot of sense, and it still sort of makes sense. I have to say, the, the trouble is that for every one of me, uh, you know, people that go to school for lit and journalism and come out and work for eight years, nine, eight, what the? Eight years now. Uh, how old am I? Uh, and this—I mean, this is all that I've done. I, I've, I've flipped burgers. I've worked in schools. I've bartended for four years. But this has been my thing for the entire time. I've really ground my nose into it. The Origami Man went through a professional editor for concept and for proofing. But for every one of me, there's a dozen folks out there who are writing uh, 
um, weapons porn, and I, I mean like Tom Clancy books where it's like the first five pages you have seven different guns described. Uh, the the powerful rich misogynist who took over my life is actually becoming a genre unto itself, and these people are. Wait, all, that's the Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Not to mention all the the Harry Potter stuff, the Twilight stuff, the the interconnection, the uh, the rich powerful misogynistic wizard who took over my life and brought me to wizarding school, who was also a vampire. Wait, was so, Dumbledore, is that, is that, yeah, is that what that's saying? Or? Be, if you read between the lines, actually, <laughs> Dumbledore is an entirely different character, yeah. Oh, no, that's the thing. Self-publishing really? is is a very dense field, and it's flooded with people's, everyone's work. And so I'm I'm at this point, I'm on the fence about whether I want to stay as a self-published author or whether I'm going to pull the books again and, you know, roll the dice on agents again. Um it's it's hard to say. The the payoff for self-publishing is amazing. If you can get noticed, I get something like 40% of the list price is my is my royalty and just for point of reference Stephen King with his amazing career and amazing agent at this point gets about 5% of what you pay for a book, mm-hmm. if that. So, if I end up sell, selling 10,000 books, then I'm sitting pretty. I'm good. Um the flip side is that I am now a publishing company with a nil budget. So I, I have to do everything myself. I have to get everybody. You know, I, I spend a lot of time on Twitter, a lot of time on Instagram. And, you know, who else spends a lot of time on Twitter and Instagram is everybody else out there. So that, I mean, you know, I'm trying with to get noticed. With their own thing to push. Yeah, with their own thing to push or with their own just life that they want, you know, the, the, the exhibitionistic brunch, thing. Yeah, with totally. With their own cat video. Yep. I saw this on the news and I'm pissed off. And, you know, if you look at Amazon too, the self-publishing thing, because there's no current vetting process for books, there's nothing they're, – they're just experimenting with a community for authors where we get together and say, hey, I'll read your book. Oh, cool. That was professionally done. That, that, that meets a high level of excellence. So I'm going to now – say as someone that you can trust that this is good they've just started to do that in the last six to eight months i want to say um but it still is something where if you name your uh if you named the wedding album the orgiastic wedding album that would come up that you know grandma's photos that she took at the wedding last week decided to self-publish on amazon that comes up next to my five-year a million words written to get this thing to the point that it's at now, book. So there, it's it's hard to get yourself noticed, and once you get noticed, it's hard to be taken seriously. So it's it's a give and take. Do I pay – essentially, you know, that 40% that I make versus the 5% Stephen King makes, that 35% difference, that's him paying somebody else to hype the book, proof the book, sell the book call up Barnes and Noble and go, hey, Stephen King's got a new book. You should you should put it on Carry your shelves. Book, Distribute yeah. it. Truck drivers, you know, I mean everybody who distributes for him is getting out of his royalty a little bit. So it it's uh it's a give and take. And I'm I'm still unclear on what the best way is. So. Is this side of being an author changing your desire to write? Like, have have the books changed or have the process that you set out for yourself that you wanted to write this series, has that been influenced by the challenges you've faced trying to self-publish? Short answer, no. The long answer, no, and here, here's why. Uh, 
I love writing, and I have to say, if you know, if you if you speak to my friends, if you speak to my partner, if you speak to my family, one of the things that I say almost daily is, if if I didn't have to worry about making a living right now, this is pretty much all I would be doing. I love writing. Uh, I've been grinding at it for eight years. It it's just something that charges me up in a way that pretty much nothing else does, um, and I I would. I, I really would do it for free. The the point of getting published, the point of getting sold, in addition to the, the nicety of making a living at what you love doing, I really want people to read my stuff. I don't actually think of myself entirely as a writer or as an author. Uh, I think of myself as a storyteller. And I don't mean that in some Ponzi like, you know, you, you, you all can't see this out in Radio Land, but I'm about to throw my scarf over my shoulder. And, yes, I think of myself as a storyteller. But the truth is, that's what I do. I like to tell stories. And the idea of creating an engaging lie and an engaging fiction that pulls people in, it's just – it's fascinating. And using words in that sense, just it, – it's a wonderful feeling. So no, it, it, that – the difficulty that I've run into has not changed my perspective of writing at all, my perception of writing at all. Uh, it has changed my perception of self-publishing. And if there are agents out there who are listening or anybody down the pike who wants to help me sell these stupid things, dear God, please call me. B-siders, that's a call to you. Yeah, right? Help a brother out. But for real, if I didn't have to worry about making a living, if I didn't have to worry about selling the books, if I, if I had an editor who was employed with me, if I had an agent who was employed with me, then really about every six months I would just be knocking on the door or, you know, however long it took me, I'd be saying – this is what I have now. Do you do you have an interest in this one? What can we do with this? Point uh, for do we do we want to take a break? Do we want how do we want to? Are we good? Should I just keep? I can keep talking. I've got a question. Do it. Do it. Okay. Yeah. What do you, what do you got? <laughs> that um, that wanting to tell stories. How mm-hmm. else have you expressed that, or where does that come from oh. in your life? Uh, well, when I was about two years old, my dad and I were watching we've gone, TV. We've gone way back. We've gone way back. No, this is always the fun place I like to start. Um, my dad ripped the cable out of the wall when I was like two years old because apparently we were watching TV and a bubblegum ad came on and he was like, oh, that was kind of interesting. And looked over and I just had this like slack-jawed expression. And he went, nope, forget this. So uh, I just ser- – I started reading at a really, really early age. And my parents, God bless them, they didn't really pay – a damn bit of attention to what I was reading. So I learned to read off of Superman comics and Calvin and Hobbes. And then when I was like nine years old, uh, I was going to the library and I had, you know, I mean, libraries, they're just, they're big intimidating spaces. And I said to my dad, what should I, what should I get out of the library? And he gives me a list. And I just picked the first thing on the, on the list and come back. It was the Grapes of Wrath. <laughs> for a nine-year-old. Yeah, for a nine-year-old. You know, there's that, that end where, you know, the, the, the woman who's, who's, well, I guess I can't really – I'm not going to spoil the Grapes of Wrath for you. But, uh, <laughs> you know, this – I just – I was reading things constantly. I remember being about 11 or so and uh, – or I guess I must have been younger – fantasizing on the couch about being a superhero. And he I, I realized my father was watching me from his desk and he was, what are you doing? And I went, oh, fantasizing and got really embarrassed. <laughs> and I asked him about this like a solid decade later and he goes oh yeah I figured you just stopped doing that and I said nope never stopped just stopped doing it out loud 
And that's what it is. I tell myself stories all the time. I have a hyperactive imagination. If I can't sleep at night, I will actually start playing movies in my head, whether they're somebody else's movies or my own stuff. Um, the Origami Man came out of this, when I was 16, this idea of uh, what if you had a suit of armor that could live in between your skin cells? And that was a little bit too unrealistic. It, it made more sense for it to be an alien shell that lived on your back and was connected to your spine. Ah, uh, yes. You know, yeah. You gotta, I mean, that, that is actually a fun... Reality. That's a fun thing, though. You really do need to, to look at, you know, what's too much of a lie to tell people. Um, there's a chunk in the second book where I give a very clear description of what a parsec is, a parsec being the distance between uh, our star and a star that uh, has a parallax angle of one arc second. Basically, it's 3.19 light years, something to that effect. But, you know, this, this description of what that means had to be in there in the mid... You know, this is the alien ship talking in the guy's ear while he's eating alien bird steak in some guy's smuggling ship as they zip off to another another uh, star system. But, you know, I needed that piece of truth to make people swallow the fact that we're going to grow a star destroyer, essentially, from a little seed that we stick in a giant space whale. By the way, that's where the seeds of these ships are supposed to go normally, is these three-and-a-half-mile-long uh, spacefaring whale things. So, yeah. It's a very serious, serious story. <laughs> Anyway, I just I started doing this at an early age, and it charges me up. And so, did where was this? Was this the why do you do this, or was this what else are you working on? Where where were we on this? Well, I one? think that's the next logical question. Where is it taking you, Ben? There's four more of these books, for one thing. Um, they they involve sort of the continuing attempt of Samson to hold on to his dwindling sense of humanity. I mean, the guy can fly 300 billion miles a second. We have faster-than-light travel in this. I mean, he feels very disconnected from reality in some respects. So there's four more of those books. Um, I have this frustratingly long file of story ideas that range from more science fictions to uh, straight novels that I've been wanting to write for a while. Uh, and I, I'm actually right now... Just for the, it's, well, it started out as a hell of it, and now it really is something that I'd like to get some attention for, and, and maybe even get made down the pike. The thing is that this is going to be my really Sisyphean ideal. Uh, when I was on my way to New Zealand, uh, I drove across country with a friend of mine, and we did 4,200 miles in six days or something. This is, you drove across the, the U.S.? The United States, yes, yeah. sorry. Uh, so I drove across the United States, and I think about the second day or so, I said, you know, I've had this this idea for a, a, a Batman movie, actually. Do you want to sit down and, like, you can open up your computer and we'll try to put this thing together? So over the course of the next four days, um, we worked pretty much nonstop on this on this uh, Batman movie. We got into seven fist fights. I lost four teeth. Um, he, he still can't see out of his right eye. But we, we did manage to get an, an actual plot down. And my homework sort of is to get over here and write a screenplay, which I've never done before. And I finally got a handle on it. So I'm working on that now. I should actually clarify for those of you out there going, what's this guy doing? There's a Batman movie in production right now. Um, did, did y'all ever watch Batman Beyond? It was the kids' show with Batman in the future. I actually did. Yeah. Sweet. Sadly. Yeah, I'm, tr I'm trying to write a, an act, like a, an, 
I'm loath to say the word gritty, but, but an adult acceptable real plot version of Batman Beyond that Batman involves... Beyond. For, uh, for the Batman franchise to pick up? Or? Well, I mean, honestly, I got to say Zack Snyder and his little cadre, um, they kind of remind me of uh, Trump and his cabinet in terms of the bad bad decisions that they keep consistently making. So that's, I kind that's of... That's a big call, Ben. I, you know, <laughs> these movies are really bad. <laughs> they're just... They're... they're uh, they're really, really bad. So no, I, I, um, I, I joke that either they're going to start going in a new direction in a couple of years, or they'll crash and burn on these things, and they will. And when they reboot. do, you'll be there with your. Uh, yeah, I mean, for real though, that's kids. Yeah, that's in. that's a that's a that's a real thing because that that happened before. They tried to do Batman Beyond about ten, fifteen years ago, right before Batman Begins. And that was actually what did it, was they decided we're going to go in a different direction from Joel Schumacher's uh, Batman and Robin. And that was what got them Batman Begins, but one of the other projects was Batman Beyond. So that that is actually how this seems to go. I've, I've been researching this stuff a fair amount to make sure that I'm not just, like, wasting my time. Eh, it's not a waste of time. It's fun doing this. But I've been trying to figure out if it's feasible to actually get this thing sold. Um, and that is basically how it would go, would be that... After the Batman, the gritty, bone-crunching, he's going to kill a whole bunch of people movie comes out in a couple of years, they might be looking to continue in, in a new vein, or they might really need to restart. Um, so, yeah, that would, that would sort of be the progression there. And you know, you never know, Henry, because um, as we learned previously, Fifty Shades started out as Twilight fan fiction. Yeah, which, again... I, I would love to read those first drafts. So uh, things can spin painful, into their own unique yeah. projects. Maybe yeah, yeah, it could yeah. be BDSM Batman. BDSM Batman. <laughs> no, they, they did that one. You remember Batman and Robin when he had the, the bat nipples? And the, the Yeah. I never saw the old stuff. Oh, no. no this, was the one with Arnold, this, <laughs> this one with like Arnold Schwarzenegger and, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. ice to meet you. Mm. All the really great, awful, awful yeah, puns. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, suit, the suit had, like, nipples. No way. It's really a weird choice. <laughs> they went in a weird direction with that thing. Okay, you're right. They made some weird choices. Yeah, right. <laughs> now, um, one thing New Zealanders love to ask people who have freshly arrived in New Zealand is, how are you enjoying it? How is Wellington treating you? You know, I, I really love it here, actually. Um, it's it. I, I was worried in the first week that I was here because I loved it so much that I was just in vacation mode, and that I wasn't seeing the place clearly. And then I, you know, I started seeing small flaws. And uh, hang I, on, what? I know. <laughs> You're don't, not supposed to say that. Don't judge me. No, I mean this was this was good though. This was like uh, like the salt in the caramel. You know, uh, it it made the reality of the place more clear that this is a really wonderful spot. In fact, I had on my way over here, biking in the rain on this beautiful, beautiful summer day, uh, <laughs> this, this dude whipped out of a side street, didn't look at me, and I had to figure out how to do a quick little, you know, jam on the brake skid turn mm. and not get hit by him. He didn't even look. He just whips right into traffic. I was pissed. I was also scared. I kept biking, and about 100 yards later, this woman drove up parallel to me and went, Hey, are you okay? And I went, yeah. I, you know, I cursed about the guy a little bit. But then, you know, as an episode, I yelled, thank you. Because it was just, it was a kind thing that this person did, that she, she took it upon herself, even if she was driving in the same direction, even if it was bumper to bumper, so she was going to be stuck next to me. You know, that seems to be the overall Wellington spirit, is people that are looking out for each other, or at least trying to. 
uh, and it, it's a it's a nice spot here. So you, you got a you got a good population of people, and they seem to be doing cool things. Well redeemed. That's yeah. what we love to hear on B side stories. Right. Yeah. We're all about. If someone cuts you off, someone else will check exactly. you're okay. And I gotta say, <laughs> it's not so all far, <laughs> it's like ten to one people that check up on you to people that cut me off. It's it's been mostly people that are nice. So. Yeah, I, I I came here for a reason. I was told that this is a really really good place, and so far it's it's borne out uh, my expectations pretty well. So sounds good, Ben. That might be enough for now. We loved hearing about your book. It sounds bizarre and funny and um, bizarre and funny. That, that's that about sums it's it up. Really yeah. bizarre, yeah. Yeah, bizarre, but, funny, <laughs> but human. In spite of all the weird stuff, it's definitely very human. Very human. Yeah. Worth checking out. Mumfordzisk.com. Yeah, com. There's other stuff up there, too. The Misadventures of an Idiot Traveling Internationally. There you so, go. Yeah. Check out the blog posts. Definitely. Benjamin Mumford Zisk on Amazon. Yep, Benjamin Mumford Zisk on Amazon. I mean, that's the nice thing about that weird last name. If you type in Mumford Zisk, you get the website, Amazon, Twitter, Instagram, and actually, uh, my my father's research chemistry PhD thesis uh, from way back when, before he changed his name after my folks got divorced. So, like, if if you're interested in both sci-fi and using boron to uh, look at cancer cancer cells, um, you can kind of go back and forth. I wouldn't be surprised if people had there's both probably of those interests. someone out there. Yeah, somebody's yeah. like, hang on, hang on, mass mass spectrometers and science fiction to the internet. Get, get on there. Get on there, B-siders. Yeah, do it to it. 